back to our second eye test podcast. Except we're not called the eye test anymore. We're called eye test for two. And our don't ask us why. We just are. It's a long story. But I figure if the Tampa Bay Devil Rays can change their name to the Tampa Bay Rays, why can't we, right? Well, we changed the name, Clark, but we didn't change the quality. And <laughs> this is going to continue to be informative and entertaining. And I don't care if you're in your car, in your yacht, or, <laughs> or in your house. Give this podcast a listen and you will become a regular. You listener. are correct, sir. That's Ira Kaufman. I'm Clark Judge. And we're both Hall of Fame voters. And I mention that because each week at this time, we're going to look at the NFL past, present, and future through a Hall of Fame lens. And for instance, today, um, we're going to discuss the candidacy of a former Bengal star, that'd be Ken Riley, whom Tony Dungy mentioned last week, and he promoted on this program, said he thought he should be an automatic Hall of Famer. Um, we're also going to revisit San Diego's Qualcomm Stadium. And when I was covering the Chargers, I was called Jack Murphy Stadium. They're going to raise it. They're going to tear that thing down and shortly. Um, also talk about the passing of uh, Baseball Hall of Famer Joe Morgan, who died on Monday at the age of 77, and, and we will also sit down with former 49ers star and Hall of Fame candidate Bryant Young, who suffered a Dak Prescott-like injury over 20 years ago and not only recovered, but he had a great career and was a league's top defensive lineman. But first, Ira, I, I want to go back to what we talked about last week, and what we talked about was Tampa. You're in Tampa. Um, it seems to be, as I mentioned, the epicenter of Pro sports today, you've got the Stanley Cup champions there. You've got the Tampa Bay Rays, not Devil Rays, who just vanquished my Yankees in five games. And um, you've got the Bucks, And you've got Tony Dungy. We spoke to Tony last week. I asked you about everything, but <laughs> sending Tom Brady to math class, frankly. But what I want to ask you today and what I forgot to ask you then was, What's going on with the Super Bowl? And I'm talking about Super Bowl 55 because it's scheduled to go in uh, Tampa this year, early February, the first weekend of February. What's going on with that? Uh, are there contingency plans? What are they doing in, in the wake and in the midst of the COVID epidemic? Clark, just a couple of minutes before this podcast, I, I was in a discussion with Mr. Derek Brooks, Hall of Fame class of 2014, yep. first ballot linebacker, uh, a member of the all-time greatest 100 players, Derek Brooks is on the Super Bowl committee. He's very involved, Clark. And why wouldn't you have him on your committee here in Tampa planning the Super Bowl? And while he says they, nobody has heard from the league that they want to change the date or even thinking about changing the date, the message from Derek Brooks was clear, Clark. Tampa wants this game under all circumstances, whether that's a week later, two weeks later, Tampa is not going to throw its hands up and say February 7th or bust. That's not going to be the situation. What's interesting, Clark, is things like the Hall of Fame meeting the day before the Super Bowl, yep. the NFL honors the night before the Super Bowl. That's all up in the air. It could be partially virtual. It could be all virtual. Um, NFL honors is going to be in Tampa theater. It's an old venerable movie house. That holds about a thousand people. You might only see a hundred people, but Clark, as far as the date, Brooks makes it clear Tampa will be very flexible. 
But there've got to be contingency plans for people in the stadium, maybe no people in the stadium, media, you have a media week. As you know, we used to go in on Saturdays or Sundays the week before. Maybe there's only a limited number. I was told, for instance, that uh, only 60 media members may be present in the press box. Are all those things in play? They're all in play. They're all under discussion. Uh, there's some meetings this week where some things are going to be decided. Maybe some of those issues could be resolved. Clark, there's even the idea that the teams won't fly into Tampa until the weekend right. and possibly practice at their home facilities. Uh, Clark, you know, in a year like this, nothing's nailed down and everything's open to change. Ira, what's your gut feeling about February 7th? Do you think that game's going to be played that date, or do you think it'll be played at a later date? Because as you mentioned, you can go to later dates at that stadium. Nothing's going on there. I think it's going to be at a later date, Clark, because I don't think we've seen the end of the juggling of the regular season schedule. Right. I think it might only just be getting started in that regard. I hope I'm wrong. So do you. Yeah. Uh, but the NFL was hit hard this week. Uh, Buffalo's playing on a Tuesday night. They're supposed to play Kansas City on a Thursday night. Obviously, that can't happen. That game's pushed back. It creates all kinds of issues. So, Clark, my answer is the league will use the end of the regular season uh, to clean up this mess and push back the Super Bowl. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen the Chargers schedule, but it's as if they put it in a Cuisinart. I mean, they've moved games all over the place. Doesn't make any sense. Um, anyway, I agree with you. I think it probably will be played at a later By date. Way, I'm not uh, sure. Clark, your, your Chargers are playing their hearts out. They're absolutely <laughs> yeah. playing their guts out. For three no, teams, no teams had tougher losses than the Chargers with some serious injuries. Yeah. And Justin Herbert, I don't think there's anybody that doesn't think this kid's going to be a star, Clark. Yeah, I, I like watching him play. Well, anyway, um, I hope you're right. I hope it is played there. I always love Tampa. I don't think uh, I'll be there, and I don't think a lot of people will be there, simply because, as you mentioned, we don't know what's holding out, uh, what's in store for the future. But I do know this. There are growing numbers of persons testing positive, which to me indicates that there'll be a limited number, if that, of media members going to Tampa. And I do think we'll probably do our Hall of Fame meeting virtually as the senior and contributor committees did this summer. Anyway, I want to move on. I mentioned Joe Morgan. He passed away this week at the age of 77. He was a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall of Fame second baseman who was a great second baseman. Um, you have any, any memories of Joe, uh, vivid memories? Uh, did you ever cover him? Did you ever know him? First thing I'd say, Clark, is uh, he doesn't stand alone. This last few months have been brutal. Oh. From Cooperstown perspective, Seaver, the great Seaver, Lou Brock, there's been a couple of others. Gibson, Whitey Ford. Gibson, Whitey Ford. Now, Joe Morgan specifically, Clark, I'll say this, and I think, I think I got a lot of support. For two or three years, he was the best player in baseball, Clark, the mid-70s. Yeah, that's the apex yeah. of the, the the big red machine. They won it in 75 and 76. I think he was the best player. And that includes Johnny Bench on that Reds team. That's saying a mouthful. Yeah, and I is. think he was the best player. He won back to back MVPs. Not yeah. easy for a second baseman. Uh, Clark, we always remember him flapping that arm when he stood at the plate. Yeah, that's what I remember. Um, yeah. And he was such a smart player, Clark, besides his great natural abilities. Uh, I enjoyed listening to him as a broadcaster, but boy, he was one smart baseball player, Clark. Yeah, and he was a good one. In fact, Bill James considers him the best second baseman of all time. Puts him ahead of Hornsby, which is saying a lot. 
Uh, that, that, I don't know if he passes the eye test in that regard over there, Clark. <laughs> yeah, but I know if anyone could see the eye test with uh, Rogers Hornsby, be you, Ira, because you were there. <laughs> um, oh, since I mentioned uh, second baseman and, and Hornsby and Morgan, today, October 30th, is the 60th anniversary of Bill Mazeroski's home run that beat the Yankees in Game 7 at Forbes Field. Do you remember that? Because I do. Now, wait a minute, Judge. I, I, I was in kindergarten, and I don't remember it because I was putting crepe paper together for my mother. Uh, but you, being uh, an octogenarian, uh, you were probably you might have been in college. So I might what do have you been, remember about that date? I might have been, but I wasn't. I think I was in third grade, and I, and I came home from school, ran downstairs, turned on the black and white TV, and time to see Rusky closing putting on home plate and crossing home plate. I went, oh, my God, what happened? He hit a home run, beat the Yankees. Do you know who he hit the home run off of? Uh, wait a minute. Uh, Tracy St – no, not no. Tracy St Ralph Terry. Uh, Ralph Terry. He was Ralph a pretty Terry. good pitcher. It was a 1-0 pitch uh, and over Clark, the field didn't, wall. Uh, didn't Ralph tell Terry face Willie McCovey in the 62 World Series? And, he might have. Uh, with he hit that, that line shot. drive that ended it? Yeah. Yeah, to Richardson, he might have. Yeah, might have, and, and Richardson caught that. Um, anyway, it was, a, it was a great game, great moment, and someone labeled it the greatest home run of all time. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> you know, Clark, uh, one thing about that World Series, when the Yankees won three games, they killed the Pirates. Yeah, I mean, right. they bludgeoned them. But the Pirates would win the one-run games, and they end up winning the series. Yeah, and the Yankees actually scored in the top of the ninth to make that a 9-9 game. And Maz comes up in the bottom ninth, and he, he clinched it and, and sent everyone home happy. Um, I mentioned Qualcomm Stadium. It was Jack Murphy Stadium when I was covering the Chargers. I went there in 1984, covered it to 1994. They're going to raise it, Ira. They're tearing the whole thing down. That property now, and I know you've been there, is owned by San Diego State. It's in Mission Valley. Nothing's happened to it. So if you see what Qualcomm looks like today, and there have been virtual tours. You can get them online. It's a dump. Now, it was always a dump when the Chargers were there, but it's now more of a dump because San Diego State hasn't done anything with it. But they're going to tear it down, build their own 35,000-seat stadium, and I think they're going to put um, business operations, maybe some residential units on the property. I think it's 80-some acres. Again, do you have any vivid memories from seeing a Bucks chargers game there? Well, my two great recollections, Clark, are Super Bowls. Uh, Redskins, yeah. Broncos, the Doug Williams game that yep. will live, uh, you know, in, in for me, the great second quarter, five touchdowns for the Redskins. Right. And, of course, the Bucks Super Bowl against the Raiders. Clark, the Raiders had a heck of a team. They Rich did. Cannon, MVP yep. of the league. But that Buck defense, that was a historic defense, Clark. You know one. that. Yeah. Um, and they did a job on Jerry Rice and, and Gannon. Um, and the Bucks were the best team in football. My wife and son came out to the game. I got them tickets. Uh, through the bucks, I had to pay for them. I think it was $600 each face value. Now that would be considered a bargain, Clark. And they went out there, they took the trolley, Clark. Yeah. Uh, we were staying at the Marriott uh, in San Diego. Yeah, and they Marcadero. took the trolley to the game and, and the trolley back. And my wife told me that on the ride back, all these Raider fans, she was scared stiff. She had a 15-year-old son with her. Uh, I, of course, was in the press box. You know, I wasn't with her. And she said all these Raider fans were looking at these two with their buck jerseys. And it was touch and go for a while, Clark. <laughs> I'll tell you one memory I've got. 
and it's not a Super Bowl. I remember those. I was at all of them. But it was when the Bucks came to town and Sam Weish was the uh, head coach. And I think it was 1992 when Bobby Ross was coaching the Chargers. And all of a sudden, I looked at the schedule and how it was falling. I said, they're going to make the playoffs because look who they're playing next, Tampa Bay. And I said, their schedule is a much RS schedule. And it was much RS like Tories RS. So I printed that story and people were laughing about it. Sam Weiss gets on the conference call the next day and he goes, some idiot in your town called the schedule much RS. What do you think that says about us? We pass that around the team and they're furious. They're furious. So I go into the locker room that day. Players aren't talking to me because they're upset. And then Bert Grossman calls me over and I said, you upset too? He goes, no, are you kidding me? Do you think I actually care about what you wrote in the paper or anyone else when I go against some of these guys from Tampa? No, I just care about beating his ass. Let them say what they want. We're going to go out and beat them. And they did. And then they ran the table and they did go to the playoffs for the first time in a decade. But anyway, um, good stories about uh, Qualcomm, a.k.a. Jack Murphy. I'm going to miss it. I'm not sure anyone else will. Lastly, Ken Riley. I mentioned him at the outset. Tony Dungy mentioned him last week, Ira. You're on the senior committee, the senior subcommittee for the Pro Football Hall of Fame voters. Ken Riley is a guy whose name came up this year when Drew Pearson was named as the nominee. Now, from what I understand, he was the second place finisher. That was what was reported. Until then, I don't think he'd ever been a finalist. And yet, as Dunchy mentioned, you know, 65 career interceptions. He's fifth, tied for fifth. Everyone ahead of him is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the guy who's tied for fifth is Charles Woodson, who's going in probably in 2021 as the first ballot guy. Seventh place guy, Ed Reed, Hall of Fame. Eighth place guy, Ronnie Locke, Hall of Fame. Ken Raleigh can't get a sniff. Why? I'll say this, Clark. He's close. He's darn close. It would not shock me if he becomes part of the class of 2022 as the senior guy. Uh, and I think he deserves it. 65, it's a huge number, Clark. And guys, passes weren't throwing 45 passes a right. game in, in, in 1980, Clark. You know that. Right. Uh, the big right. knock on Riley, and I don't know how true it is, Clark, is Lamar Parrish, right. his uh, partner in crime as a cornerback with those Bengal teams, was making the Pro Bowls, and Ken Riley was not. He went to eight but, of them. Parrish went to eight of them. Riley, zero. Clark, my eye test tells me that Ken Riley deserves his bust in Canton. Uh, yeah, maybe they were throwing at Ken Riley, but it wasn't working, Clark. <laughs> it wasn't working because the ball was going the other way yeah. 65 times. You can't deny the numbers in this case. You just can't. He's very close. And I know Bengal fans, Clark, that's a bigger story. Yeah, they, right. don't think they don't think they're fairly represented. I think they have a point with Anthony Munoz being the lone guy, basically. Um, and they had some good teams. And they went to the Super Bowl uh, against the 49ers. Uh, and they went to the Super Bowl twice uh, against the 49ers. That's right. right. And, um, and, and they don't have people. So he's close, Clark. And he just passed away. That's the unfortunate he did. part. He did. But I don't think you'd be shocked if he's going to be the next senior guy after Drew Pearson. Well, especially if he was a runner-up. I, I wouldn't. But you're right about the Lamar Parrish comparison. Lamar Parrish was eight Pro Bowls. Um, he was also five all pros and uh, three first team all pros. And that's the knock is like, well, wait a second. How could this guy be when the other guy's getting all the attention? And, um, and, and, I, and I think people look at Ken Riley and say, was it more than just the interceptions? But like you mentioned, you know, 65 interceptions when people weren't throwing all that much. 
But you also got a very good point about the Bengals. One guy, that's Munoz. Yeah, Ken Anderson, he's not in. Ken Raleigh, he's not in. Lamar Parrish, not in. Isaac Curtis, not in. I know they're upset. Willie Anderson, not in either. Anyway, I'm going to stop there. We're going to go to commercial. Thanks, Ira. When we return, you're going to hear from former 49 star Bryant Young and what he thinks of the Dak Prescott injury. You're listening to the I Test for Two on FullPressRadio.com. How bad do you want it today? I expect to be playing next week. That is on three. One, two, three. Welcome back to I Test for Two. I'm Clark Judge along with Ira Kaufman. And we're joined now by former San Francisco 49ers and now Hall of Fame finalist and star Brian Young. And Ira, when I first saw Dak, Dak Prescott's injury last weekend, um, my mind sort of flashed back to week 13 of the 1998 season. I know BYU would understand why. Um, Brian suffered a horrifying leg injury on Monday night football. It was a fracture of the lower right leg and the injury was so severe that he had to have a metal rod inserted in his leg. But the good news is he not only recovered, he was the league's comeback player of the year in 1999 and an all pro that season. And furthermore, he played nine years as one of the game's finest defensive linemen after that and one of the most complete defensive tackles. I'm really glad to have him on here because he was one of the classiest and best players I covered, no matter what team in my career. Brian, always, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining Ira and me. Absolutely. Well, I definitely appreciate all the fantastic things you said about me. And uh, it's great to, to see you and hear your voice. And, and it's always uh, interesting to hear your uh, storytelling and uh, telling <laughs> yeah. it like it is for sure. Well, thank so you. Thank you for um, the work that you guys do uh, as well. And and I'm happy to be on your show. I think you just want to vote there, B.Y. <laughs> oh, no, Ira, I think you just got to vote. Hey, I'm not sure if you watched that Cowboys game. I, I would bet you may have seen video of it, but I, I certainly know that you know what happened. Um, I guess my question to you, my first question is, when you hear or see something like that, how often do you flash back to that? Monday night game in 1998? Oh, uh, when I saw, you know, even, you know, Dak's injury, um, I had a flashback and it just, it, it took me back to all those feelings of uh, just one, the, the pain, the atmosphere, and just kind of lost in the moment and uh, not really understanding what was going on. And then the whole process of, you know, everybody trying to, you know, tend to my injury and, and get me to the hospital. And so all those things kind of came back, back up. And uh, you just, when you see something like that in today's game, uh, you just, you just hate to see that to happen to anybody. And so my heart goes out to Dak and uh, I know it's going to be a long recovery for him, but uh, you know, he's young, um, which is the good thing. Yeah, um, He's going to recover. He's going to get better. Um, I just wish him the best and um, he's going to come back stronger. So I look forward to watching him become the comeback player of the year. Let me ask you this. Um, I saw, and millions did as well, Dak's immediate reaction as he was taken off the field. Pretty emotional, uh, sure. understandably so. Um, what about you when you were taken off the field? Quite honestly, I don't remember you know, seeing you. I remember seeing them take off the field, but I remember what the players were thinking, and they were down on their knees and uh, the horrified expressions. 
what was going through your head as they were carting you to the locker room? Did you know how bad it was and did you know what you were facing? I knew exactly how bad it was. The minute uh, the injury happened, I, I saw my leg at a 90 degree angle and it, it was not good. And uh, it didn't feel good for one. And so the looks of it was uh, devastating. Um, I think, you know, anytime, it's amazing when you, the body is an amazing thing. When you don't see an injury, you don't really feel the, the uh, all that the injury is. Um, and, and so when I took a look at it, it was like the pain intensified. So I knew immediately that it was something that was pretty serious. And uh, once everybody got uh, on the field to attend to the injury, uh, got me stabilized. So they got me on the gurney, took me off on the cart and, uh, loaded me up immediately in the ambulance and we went to the hospital. Uh, it was all hands on deck. I was really taken aback. Even Eddie DeVarlo at the time, uh, the owner uh, came down from his box and, and uh, rode in the ambulance and was given directives to the hospital uh, to, to, to get me there as fast as they could. And so there's just a lot going on uh, during that time. And so, um, you know, it, it was pretty, pretty, I knew it was going to be a hard road back. Um, I knew it was going to be, um, you know, some some question marks on whether or not, you know, I could come back and play. And so um, that's what I was faced with. Mr. Young, I'm sitting here in Tampa, Florida, and I'm going to check on your memory, Bryant. Uh, okay. I'm going to bring you back to two games. Let's see. Let's see. Mr. Young, the first game of the 97 season, the 49ers go cross country to Tampa. Tony Dungy's second year. Niners are favored. You got a heck of a team. You got a heck of a team. And first game, you're playing in Tampa. The next thing you know, down goes Jerry Rice. Yes. Down goes Steve Young. Yes. Saps all over the place. He's killing people. You lose the game, 13 to 6. Now, Brian, you won the next 11 games. That's how good the 49ers were that year. What do you remember about that game? And did you realize at that point that, hey, this Buck defense has a chance to be special? You know what? Um, it, I do remember that game. It was a, a reverse play. And, uh, and I, I can't remember um, who tackled Jerry and, and he hurt his knee. It was a torn ACL or something. Yeah, it was. And, um, and, and so Steve went down as well and I knew it was going to be a long road, you know, uh, but again, you know, it's, you know, when you're on the road, you got to definitely pack your defense and special teams. That's what I've always been coached and, and learned that you have to pack those two on the road. And so, uh, you know, we, we did the best we could, but, you know, we just didn't, couldn't get a lot going on offense, uh, rightfully so because we lost one of our best players on the team, or if not in the, in the, in the league um, and then our quarterback um, as well. So it was just a, a hard road, you know, to tread right there because, you know, you lost two, two great guys on offense. Uh, but what I remember though, you know, it's, it was back then, it wasn't preached as much as it is now then it's, you know, man down, man up. And so it was an opportunity for those that uh, were on the depth chart to step into a role and, and play a big part. And I think anytime it's a testament, even in today's game, it's a testament to the team's depth, how well you go in the, in the playoffs or during the season when you have an injury, um, you know, that's bound to happen, God forbid. And so you hope that you have the, the depth on your 
your roster to make sure that, you know, those guys can step in and you don't lose a beat. And so we had some guys that can come in and fill those roles and make plays. Um, so Brian, was that the first time, um, was that the first time you became aware of uh, the Derek Brookses, the Saps, and the uh, and the John Lynches? Yeah, well, that was you know they they John and you know Derek and and Warren was in uh, you know I think his what second year maybe third year. Second so, year, second uh, year for Brooks and uh, and and Sap, yeah. Yeah, so they were they were definitely uh, you know they had a great you know team, and that you know that team was uh, the way it was built. Uh, you know you had a great. Uh, personnel on, on defense and so those guys were um, I mean they were dynamite dynamite to watch and just watching them over the years um, and how they played and, and controlled games and Brian what do so you remember the, about, what do you yeah, remember about the, um, the 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 uh, the um, playoff game uh, in the 2002 season when uh, when the Niners came into Ray J um, and you got rolled pretty good Brian I think it was 31-7 um, Garcia was your quarterback. Um, what, what do you remember about that day? I'm at, um, at a playoff run for a while. You know, it's kind of the end of, the, of that new rebuilding, the, my last rebuilding phase um, when we were kind of going up. And so uh, it was just tough. We knew it was going to be a tough environment to play in. There. You know, they still had a good defense and, and some really good players. And so um, it was a – it was a tough one going in there. We lost that game and, and we're knocked out of the playoffs. You know, B.Y., that 97 game that Ira mentioned, that was Steve Mariucci's first game with the 49ers. You lost Jerry, Steve, and I think you lost Jeff Brom in that game too because you went to St. Louis the next week and you played with Druckenmiller. And remember guys on the team saying to Mariucci, don't worry, we got this covered. You don't have to worry about Druckenmiller. We can win this game. And you did. That's cool. Yeah. Well, that Druck, I forgot about Druck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so um, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, no, there, yeah, there's a lot of guys you forget about. But, yeah, for sure, Druck, he stepped in and made some big plays. Uh, it's unfortunate he didn't uh, have a, a long career. Yeah. But, um, again, we had some guys that, that can come in and, and make some things happen. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, Steve came in in that year and, you know, brought a, a new energy and uh, more like a player's coach, but definitely uh, well-versed in the uh, – Offense, uh, the West Coast offense, and did a fantastic job play calling. Uh, just unfortunate we lost some really key guys, but we managed to, to you know, uh, sustain and have a good year and uh, make it to the playoffs. BY, I got a couple more questions about um, your injury, going back to what we were talking about initially. One is, what drove you in the offseason? I mean, you've had a horrifying injury, career threatening injury. What kept you going? What kept you going positively and determined to get back on the field because it would have been very easy to say, that's it. I mean, I don't know if you would ever thought about quitting or not, but it would have been easy. And I think probably understandable if you'd had. Yeah. Well, just, you know, being young, I was still young in my career. I think going into my sixth year. So that was ahead of me. Um, I loved the game. Uh, I wanted to play. It was, uh, you know, we always hear about, facing adversity and overcoming obstacles. Well, this was a really big one for me, and it was a challenge. And so uh, any any guy that, that really has a, a love for what he does, you know, he's going to go in there and stare adversity in the face, and he's going to chip away at it a little bit at a time. And so for me, it was that. You know, I, I loved to play the game. It was, you know, I loved uh, competing. I loved everything about the game, the process. And uh, so that's just one of it. You know, uh, you talk about 
the wins and losses, yeah. but now you're faced with an injury. And so that's just part of the game. And so um, it's inevitable. I love, I love the, the all season part of it. It was tough at times. I'll tell you, it wasn't easy. And so um, there were times where I felt like it just wasn't going anywhere in the all season. And a little bit at a time you see glimmers of hope. And I would just hold on to that little glimmer of hope and uh, keep going. And then soon uh, you just saw the tables turn and, and uh, there was light, a huge light at the end of the tunnel and uh, things began to get better. And so it was remaining hopeful. You know, a lot of things just kept me uh, grounded and during that process, you know, just my faith and uh, working hard and making sure that I did everything I possibly could uh, to do what I can to get back on the field. But I had a great support system around me. You know, my family was in, you know, around me. I had the, the organization. Um, the fans were a huge part of that as well. And so, um, you know, along with that, you know, just my fortitude and my want to, I had an awesome support system around me as well. Okay, and lastly, if you could sit down with Dak Prescott today, what advice would you give him? Hey, my advice to Dak would, would be, hey, man, just um, continue to, to push forward. Uh, don't give up hope. Um, you're going to get better. He's a young player. So um, the sky is, is definitely the limit for him in terms of uh, what he can do and how he can come back. He's going to be better from it. Um, and, uh, and I wish him nothing but the best. Uh, my heart goes out to him. One more question for me, Brian, and I'm going to bring you into today's game. Uh, I'm thinking about Aaron Donald, Brian, and you're watching him all the time, his technique, his drive. And, Brian, here's my point. They talk about the best player in the NFL, and, you know, you hear Mahomes, you, you, you know, you hear another quarterback, Russell Wilson. Nobody ever considers Aaron Donald, Brian, the best player in the National Football League, and I think you could make a heck of a case for him what is it that is so unique about this guy and what's his place in, uh, in NFL history at, at playing the position? Well, you know, here's, here's a guy that, you know, a lot of, uh, he didn't probably have the height, but in terms of uh, everything else, he's explosive. His first step is uh, really quick. Um, he's strong. He plays with great leverage, good hand control and balance. And um, this guy is just, uh, he's just doing a phenomenal job. You know, he he definitely deserves, you know, the rec the recognition because he's one of the best players uh, to play the game and certainly uh, doing a fantastic job. Um, so I don't I don't know who's not doing their due diligence, but uh, certainly you want to make sure that this guy gets the recognition he deserves. You know, how does he handle yeah. yes. What's <laughs> Brian, that? How, how does he handle all the resources that these um, that these offensive linemen are throwing the constant double teaming and, and he still puts up the numbers, Brian? Well, here's the thing that I'm amazed they don't double team him enough. That's that's what I see when I when I, I watch him play and I'm like, OK, I know they're going to slide the protection to him. I know they're going to have a back and an offensive lineman on him. And uh, but it amazes me that they don't ID him as much as they should, as good of a player he is. And so he they leave him singled up and he's going to win a lot of those matchups. And so that's what he's doing. He's taking advantage of his opportunities, and he's doing a great job of it. I know that you were double and triple teamed a lot, B.Y., when you were at San Francisco. Here's my question for you. Um, you were a Super Bowl champion, an all-decade player, an all-pro, multiple pro bowler. I'm not sure. I always wondered, what part of this resume are you missing? I, I don't quite get it, but 
it also occurred to me that this is possible, and I want to see what you have to say about it. You played next to the defensive player of the year. That was Dana Stubblefield. But anyone who was covering the game or been around that team knew who was the better defensive tackle. Not to take anything away from Stubby, nothing to take away from Stubby. But he put up a lot of sacks one year, and he got the defensive player of the year and then got a big contract with Washington. But do you think that had any impact with you not getting some of the recognition that you deserve, and especially going forward, because you're now a Hall of Fame candidate? Well, you know, I don't, again, I, I don't want to take anything from his accomplishment. Um, we, we all work together. And uh, there were opportunities where, um, you know, when you have, whether you have a defensive end um, or two bookends and or two good guys in, in the inside, one that has more off the other. And so when it come up, you take advantage of them. And so, uh, you know, I think Dana did a good job just being a recipient of taking advantage of some of uh, the protections and, and things like that. Uh, again, um, you know, that's that's part of the game. You get double teams or if you're singled up, you know, you got to take advantage of those opportunities. But if yeah. uh, if you are getting doubled and they're sending, sending the protection to you or a defensive end, an inside guy or a, inside guy or a defensive end, um, you're, you're just hoping that, you know, whoever is, you know, freed up on the one-on-one matchup that they're winning. And so I think Dana did a good job of that and uh, was, a, you know, was rewarded for that as well. Yeah, and I don't want to take anything away from him either. He was a terrific player. In fact, that to me was the best tandem of defensive tackles in the NFL. And he certainly got the defensive player of the year for a reason. He was a very accomplished player. Uh, last thing is um, I mentioned sacks and he got, a, I think he had 15 and a half that year, something like that, which is astounding for a defensive tackle. But my question to you is, do you think sacks are overrated? And if you do, what, what statistic for a defensive lineman do you pay attention to? What's the most important stat to you? Is it tackles for losses? Is it sacks? What is it? Um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a combination of, of all those things. It's impact of the game. Do you change the outcome of the game? Um, you know, and sacks definitely do that. Um, those are, you know, a statistic that is highly revered and t tackles for loss in the run game for sure. Um, and then, uh, you know, how do you how you impact the game and change the outcome of the game? All those things kind of uh, play into it. But I, I will say this, though, uh, Clark, is that I played the left side, too, and primarily. And, it, it, and if you especially from the inside, it's a little different when you plan mostly against the right-handed quarterback. Um, they can definitely see you coming and step up uh, in the pocket more so than they could an end who's probably going on a high rush and coming and running a banana and coming downhill to attack the quarterback. And so a lot of times, I think I think one year I led the league and, and missed sacks and missed opportunities and that's not a good thing and uh but but i will i will say that uh because i played a lot on the left side um i think you know it was to my disadvantage um at times that i didn't get some of those ops because the quarterback would you know sometimes see me and and or that player on the left side and um and um you know take advantage of stepping up in a pocket i like to do a study on and see you know what what's the the you know, compared to the left and right side, where does most of the sacks come from? You know, when it comes to uh, interior linemen or uh, defensive ends on the right side. And um, so um, that's an inter interesting uh, study to have. But I'll say too that, uh, you know, 
um, whenever you get those opportunities, you definitely got to make sure you're taking advantage of them. But, Brian, you know, I, uh, stacks, tackles for losses are, are a huge number as well. I will say this, Brian. Uh, Sapp, who I covered, uh, almost always lined up at right defensive tackle. Right defensive okay. tackle. Um, now, Brian, when your name came up on the finalist list, I just want to show you something about the process here. Uh, and I'm going to be honest. You know, you're fifth, one of the 15 finalists. And I, my first thought, initial thought, Bryant Young, very good player, a little short of Canton. And then listening to Clark, and, you know, once I knew your name was on the finalist, I started checking out the Bryant Young story. And I think I speak for a lot of people in that room. The more you look, the more you like. And I didn't know certain things. Your sack number was a lot higher than I thought it was as an interior defensive lineman. Um. The, the Pro Bowls, you know, the all pros and how good the 49er defense was, and you're a, a big part of that. And I got to say, I like your chances going forward, Mr. Young. I like them. Well, thank you, Ira. And, uh, and I'll say this. I was, uh, you know, I think back then if I had to do it over, I don't know if I would change anything. Um, but um, sometimes I don't know if having a bigger personality would <laughs> sometimes help. Uh, in terms of uh, just being out on the forefront, um, you know, the, uh, being engaged with the fans, being engaged with the media and things like that. Um, I just, you know, I, I just went away, went about doing it the way that I best knew how. And so uh, had that hurt me, um, I don't know. But uh, certainly then, uh, you know, I didn't want to step outside of somebody I didn't want to be. Um, and so just remain true to who I am. But you know what? Um, I'm grateful for all the, the opportunities and uh, just wanted to make sure that I played the game with um, you know, great professionalism, uh, dignity, and, and respect for my opponent in, in the game. And uh, that was important to me as well. Well, you did, Brian. And uh, as I said, covering the locker room, appreciate watching you and appreciate dealing with you. And thank you so much for joining us today. And hopefully, Ira, we're going to see him as one of the 15 finalists again this year. And one of these days, we're going to push him forward. Maybe it's this year. I'd be, I'd be surprised if he's not uh, uh, not in that room to be discussed again. Clark. So would I. B.Y., thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Ira. Thank you, Clark. You got it. Thanks, take Brian. care, Brian. All right. Take care. So, Ira, what do you think? I, I love I love talking to Brian Young. He, he's a voice of reason. He was always a voice of reason in that locker room. Uh, and a terrific player. I think, Clark, you know, I think his last point was tremendous. It was. About, about uh, not being a larger-than-life persona. And, of course, yeah. you and I immediately flash to uh, Warren Sapp. I mean, yeah. we do. And, you know, it helps. It, it helps. It makes a name for yourself, uh, you know, when you get national uh, recognition. Um, and Bryant Young wasn't like that. He just nope. went about his job. But he did it exceedingly well, Clark. And I liked his point about the left and right side. And that's your assignment for the next week, Ira. You're going to do the stats on the left and the right, and you come back with a, a summation for us. You got it, Anyway, um, you hear that sound? Uh, Ira, I hear it. That either means you're doing the show from a Tampa bar or we're going to our next segment, which is <laughs> I Was There. What is it? Are you in a bar or are we going to I Was There? This is our initial I Was There, and I'm the one that was the I in this case. And <laughs> You're the I man. Clark, I'm, I'm going to bring us to January 10th, 1982, Candlestick Park. Pontiac, third and three. We'll see a pickup sometime on the right side, possibly. Montana, 
looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. Caught it! Dwight Clark! This is the game known as the catch, and I, yes, I was there. And Clark, I was a young reporter for United Press International in New York, and you'll relate to this because you're a West Coast guy. It was. And Clark, I was covering the uh, New York Giants, and um, they had just been embarrassed, I think, by the 49ers the week before in a playoff game. Um, and meanwhile, Dallas crushed the Bucks 38-0. Clark, the Niners, who nobody saw common in 1981, the Joe Montana breakthrough season and coming off the 6 and 10s, and nobody ever heard of Bill Walsh at that time, they beat the Cowboys 45-14 in week six, Clark. Right. 45-14. Now the game's in candlestick, and the Cowboys are favored. The Cowboys are favored. Why? Dallas had the pedigree. Nobody knew anything about Joe Montana at that time. And, Clark, here I am, young reporter, and they send me and Mike Rabin from Dallas to San Francisco to work with Joe Sargis. Joe Sargis was the 49ers writer based in San Francisco in 1981 for United Press. And of course, they call us the New York Mafia because <laughs> they send us in for the big games. And here this guy's covering the team all year. And I'm writing the main lead, Clark. <laughs> 26 years old. I'm writing the main lead for the NFC title game. Sargis didn't like that. So anyway, you know, Clark, you know how the wire services work. Your story better be ready when the final buzzer goes off. You don't yeah, have 45 in. minutes to collect it. Right. So the Niners are winning. And uh, I mean, the Cowboys are winning, Clark. And I think that, uh, San Francisco starts the final drive on its own 11-yard line. It was an 89-yard drive. Five minutes left. I got my story written. Danny White did this. Tony Dorsett did this. Drew Pearson, Everson Walls had two interceptions as Dallas moved on to the Super Bowl. And here comes the pass to Dwight Clark. And Clark, here's the other part. Everson Walls played a fantastic football game. The Niners made six turnovers. Right. And Walls had two picks. Right. 100 yards in penalties, six turnovers, and the Niners win the game, and Clark catches the ball over Everson Walls' head. And then, Clark, just to top the whole thing off, the whole place is going crazy. Danny White gets the ball and throws a 31-yard pass to Drew Pearson on a long slant. He gets tripped up at the 9 or 45. They only need a field goal. That's right. And I might have to rewrite my story again and put Dallas back in the Super Bowl. And, Clark, on the next play, um, Lawrence Pillars causes a fumble. Jim Stuckey falls on it. And the Niners go to the Super Bowl. And I was there. And I'll tell you what, by the end of the night, I was a basket case, Clark. <laughs> because that, that game changed about five times. It is one of the classic games in NFL history. Absolutely. So when did you send that story in? Like, what, 3 o'clock a.m. New York time? When that buzzer went off, I had a lead sending the 49ers to the Super Bowl. And, they, and I said they buried the Cowboy mystique in the soft mud of Candlestick Park. Not wow. bad. Not, Not bad, bad, Clark, for the final minute.
That's why you're the Hemingway of Tampa. Hey, a couple things there. One is, did you notice that after that touchdown pass, you never saw Joe Montana? Everyone was swarming Dwight Clark. That's because Joe Montana was in too tall Jones's face, shaking his finger at him like, you know what? I told you, we are legit. Wow. Are legit. Wow. And secondly, when I covered the 49ers, and went, my first year was 94, Dwight was in the front office, and I went to him, and among the conversations was the catch, you know, and so I said to him, I always had the feeling that Joe was throwing that ball out of bounds. And he said, so is everybody else. We practice that thing every time. Every Friday, when walkthroughs, we practice that. We never hit it. Montana, throw it too far, too short, whatever. We never hit it. And that day, off his back foot, he made the perfect pass. And you're right about Everson Walls, who was a finalist, what, three or four years ago, I think, for the first time in his 20th year of candidacy. But what do we remember Everson Walls for? Not the great player. He was the guy in the photo with Dwight Clark. And as Dwight said later, everyone thought it was going over my head. And, and you talk to some of the Cowboys, they said, Montana was throwing that ball away. Don't believe that BS. Everson Walls threw, thought the ball was going over Dwight's head. Dwight gets up, catches it. But we remember Everson Walls, not for the two interceptions, but for that. But Clark, you, and, and to, you know, to be fair to Everson Walls, Clark, uh, Montana bought himself five seconds no on that play. And Clark went to the left, and he had time to go back to the right. So I don't think Everson Walls deserves one bit of blame for that catch. No, I agree with you. And it's funny. I was at Dwight's memorial service. Joe Montana spoke uh, very eloquently at the service. He and Dwight were very close. And he said, the one thing that always concerned me is they call it the catch. Why did they ever call it the throw? <laughs> That's a good question. Anyway, R.A., final thoughts, things that happened this week, anything? Yeah, just um, I want to do a little shout-out, Clark, just briefly. Um, you know, look, it's only uh, five weeks in, but if you held a vote right now for uh, Coach of the Year, you know who would get some consideration? Matt Rule. Yeah, he would. Matt Rule. They are doing a heck of a job in Charlotte without McCaffrey. They've run off three straight wins. They're three and two. They're tied atop the division. And Clark, Teddy Bridgewater is one heck of a quarterback. He's completing 73% of his passes, Clark. Nobody talks about him. He right. keeps the chain moving. He's smart. And I think he's a winner, Clark. Hats off to Matt Rule down there, uh, up there in Charlotte. Well, surprised you didn't mention Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland. Look what's going on there. I mean, Absolutely he's taken right. that whole team and changed the culture in five weeks. And, and they're a legitimate threat, I think, a legitimate threat. They're 4-1. They're off to their best start in, what is it, 26 years? And they beat a pretty good indie team, Clark. They beat last a good week. indie team. We're going to find out how good they are this weekend, Pittsburgh. We're going to find out how good they are. Hey, Ira, thanks so much. And, and thanks to Bryant Young for joining us, Ian Glendon for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you can join us again, we loved it. You can find Ira on Twitter at iKaufman76. What's with the 76? Is that your age? What is that? What is uh, that? I think it was the year I was born, Clark. The year I was born. <laughs> I know that's not true. And you can find me at, at Clark Judge TOF. And you know what? You can find us here next week at the I Test for Two on fullpressradio.com. Thanks so much for listening.